0: So I want to remind you of just where we've been. We're going to be in 2 Kings 13 tonight, so we're going to be going through—you're more than welcome to, um, to turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 13 if you prefer to follow along in the text there. We will also, uh, in the packet that you've got in front of you, have the verses that I'll make mention of or that are mentioned in this uh, in this. In this handout. And so you're more than welcome to follow along there too, uh, as we jump around to different books, Second Chronicles and so on. Uh, I think it might be helpful. I want to just remind you of where we were last week and some of the things that we talked about last week. Remember, there has been a prophecy going back all the way into the day of Elijah that Ahab's house was coming down. And specifically, it was brought about because Ahab and Jezebel in particular and their treatment of Uh, a a neighbor of Ahab's where they basically stole his his vineyard. And that essentially was sort of the last straw. uh, God is bringing about judgment on Ahab's house for his idolatry and for wickedness of all sorts. And so the the judgment on Ahab's house has now commenced in the in the person and work of really uh, three persons. Uh, The first was Elisha, the prophet, who was initially appointed by Elijah to begin this process. We also have Jehu, who, is, who was a, uh, the commander of the armies of Israel, who was appointed to be the numero uno uh, when, when Joram, the son of Ahab, was injured. And Jehu began judge, judging uh, Israel. Also Hazael of Damascus. And I'm going to show you a map, and we're going to kind of sort through a lot of this stuff in just a minute, but I'm just doing a review just quickly. Um, all three of these people were appointed by God to begin the process of judging the nation of Israel and bring him down. Well, not only did Ahab's house get judged, but it also began to encroach upon the southern kingdom of Judah. So Judah, am I, I think I'm not clicked here. There we go. Um, The the house of Judah also began to have some effect of this. So after uh, Ahaziah, who was the king of Judah, he died when Jehu came to judge Joram of the north. He killed Joram. Ah, Ahaziah was right there with him and he killed Ahaziah too. So both kings fall, I mean, near instantly right there. Uh, in the same in the same battle, and Jehu was the one that that brought him down. Now it happens that Ahaziah was also kinfolk to Ahab. So yes, Judah's house is being judged too. But part of the reason is because of their connection with Ahab's house. And so you're gonna you're gonna see, and you will see this as I've mentioned time and time again when you read through First and Second Kings. Some of the names of the kings as the kingdom is divided sound very similar, and that's because so much of their religious practice and their ideology were very connected. So where the north started to stray into idolatry, the south was tempted to go as well because their kinfolk are up there and they're doing the same thing. And so when all of that happened, Athaliah, who is the mother of Ahaziah, Ahaziah dies right there with Joram, right? His son would ordinarily take the throne, but his mother instead reaches out for power and starts killing all of her grandchildren. She misses uh, Joash, who is a little baby at the time. Jehoshaphat, his aunt, secures him, takes him, hides him away in the temple, and and Jehoiada, the priest, you know, keeps him under lock and key and completely secret from everyone until the day it's time to reveal him. And of course, the day comes about six years later, uh, in his seventh year, when he decides uh, Athaliah has been reigning for seven years, Jehoiada decides this is the time, so they, he conspires with all the military personnel to guard him with their life, and they bring him out, they anoint him king right there. Athaliah is fit to be tied, and she comes out and is, is in protest, obviously, because they've just anointed some other king. Uh, Jehoiada instructs the guards to take her outside of the temple and have her killed, and she is killed outside the temple. And seven year old um, Joash is king there in the uh, right there in the middle of everybody, in the temple, in the midst of everybody. And once he is king, he instructs uh, Jehoiada and the other priests to set aside money from the people. People actually give money. And he sets aside this money to make repairs on the temple. That tells you a couple of things. It tells you, obviously, where Athaliah's priorities were. Her priorities were not in repairing the temple at all. She was pagan. She was the daughter of Ahab. And she uh, didn't care anything about the temple. So she sought no desire to, to, to make repairs on it. And, um, and so when Joash says, you know, the temple's in disrepair, let's set aside money and let's make repairs on it. It goes; uh, The money goes unspent for many years, and in the 23rd year of Joash, it, it still has not been spent, and so there's a renewed effort. The reason I say that is because that detail is going to be important tonight, so just remember that. They set aside money for repairs on the temple. All right, and then uh, Joash, the Davidic offspring, sat on Judah's throne, and he did so for 40 years since he was only seven when he began his reign, obviously, Jehoiada the priest was sort of his chaperone and disciple maker, you might might say, if we're going to put it in New Testament terms, and he listened to the voice of Jehoiada. But then at some point in his reign, Jehoiada died, and that, it turns out, was the spiritual uh, barometer of, of King Joash, and Joash fell, and when he fell, he fell hard. He ended up Putting to death Zechariah, who was Jehoiada's son in the temple, actually put him to death. And this started to lead to his decline. So we're going to talk about Joash's death. I know we, I briefly talked about it last week. We're going to talk about it a little more tonight. And we're going to go, we're going to turn our attention back to the north as well. So just to make sure we have everything down. Now, all that being said, let me just take just a brief second here to, to just recalibrate everybody for just a second. I want you to remember just a couple of things. Geographically, we're looking at one main area in the Old Testament. I know a lot of these places, can you hear these names and you're like, where on earth is that? I have no idea. I've never heard of this place before. But really, when we think about the Old Testament, we've got to keep just a few big areas in mind. And here is a map of those big areas. Okay. I've got them circled here. There's really five big areas that you got to think about. Okay. First is Babylon. That's a big one, all right. It's down here in the southern part of the Mesopotamia region. Remember, Mesopotamia is this green area. It actually goes all the way down into uh, Egypt, all right. But this is this right here is called the Fertile Crescent because it's shaped like a crescent, all right. This is the Mesopotamian region. Babylon is right in the heart of it. Babylon is so important, obviously, for reasons we'll get to later. But Babylon is really important. Their kingdom that's going to rise up here pretty soon. Assyria, who is right here just to the north of Babylon, is tremendously important. And they're going to be even more important in the coming weeks. Okay. Assyria is growing in power right now in our timeline. And they are tremendously important for particularly for the northern kingdom of Israel. Then we've got Syria. This goes by many different names in the Bible Sometimes you'll hear it called Syria. Sometimes you'll hear it called Aram. Sometimes you'll hear it called Damascus. Very confusing, but it is the same place. It's Syria. And for that matter, Babylon can sometimes be called Babylon by its capital city, or sometimes it can be called Akkad, or you might hear the Akkadians, all right, because of the city, all right? So uh, Syria is the same way. Sometimes it's called Damascus. Sometimes it's called Aram. Just depends. And then we've got the land of Canaan later in New Testament time labeled Palestine. But the land of Canaan uh, is right there. And then we have down here in the lower portion. I think my laser pointer went out No, it's here. somewhere. Anyway, Egypt, uh, you all know where Egypt is. That's probably the one you're most familiar with. So when we're thinking about the geography of the land, we're talking about some major areas. All right. These are going to be a couple of these are going to be really important. And I want you to just see them on a map to just remember where they're located, particularly for tonight. Syria, Assyria, two different places. All right. Syria, Assyria and the land of Canaan. You all know where that is. Okay, Now, with that in mind, there's also a few years that are tremendously important. So timelines, we can get, we're talking about a whole bunch of years and, and, and it can get really confusing, but there's really three years in particular that you just need to screw into your brains and just, just fix there in place. First year is an approximate date. We're going to call it 931. 931 is the approximate date Solomon dies and it's the approximate date or it's at least the beginning when the land begins to split up. All right, 931, kingdoms are divided. The death of Solomon, Rehoboam comes in and God splits the kingdom in two pieces. All right, Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom. That's a tremendously important date, right? So when you're thinking of Israel's history, pretty much united under David until we get to Solomon's death in 931 and then it starts to break apart. God actually breaks it apart. He has Rehoboam on the throne in the south and Jeroboam on the throne in the north. 722, that's an important date because that's when Assyria is going to come into the northern kingdom and haul off all of the northern kingdom called Israel into captivity in Assyria. The last one, 586, that's tremendously important because that's when Babylon comes into the southern kingdom and hauls off everyone from the south into Babylon. And that, that Babylonian captivity actually takes place in three successive campaigns that are over a number of years, but it finally ends in 586, okay? So think about it this way. The closer we get to those days, 722 and 586, what does God actually do? You know what he does? He starts bringing up prophets, lots and lots and lots of prophets. So basically, all of the prophets in the Bible, most all of them anyway, not all of them, but most of the prophets that are the writing prophets that have books named after them in other words, most of them are going to occur right as we get up close to 722 and then as we get up close to 586. And so most of many of our big prophets are going to be labeled by where they fall in relation to 586 in relation to the was this before Babylon was this during Babylon or was this after Babylon all right so those three dates is all the dates we 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 lay out there and everything like that you know they can get really confusing as far as the timeline goes take those three dates and just fix them in your brain. Um, because they 're tremendously important, and so when we refer to when I refer to dates tonight or any other time when I refer to years you 'll know oh we 're getting close or we're, you know that kind of thing you 'll know it, at least where we are in relation to some of these captivities all right so with that in mind let's let 's dive in so um, Hazael of Damascus remember he 's the king of Damascus he is on a campaign of judgment. And he's given this campaign honestly by, by the Lord and uh, commissioned by Elisha. And it brings tears to the prophet's eyes whenever he tells Hazel, Hazel this is what you're going to do. He weeps because he knows this is what's going to happen to the people when you do this, when you judge the land. I know that you're, gonna, you're not going to relent of, your, of the disaster you're going to bring. And that's really sad. And so Hazael continues to judge all the way through his death. He continues these military campaigns into the northern kingdom, killing tons and tons of people and continuing to engage God's people in battle all the way up through his death in 801. So that's where we're at. What year did Assyria walk in and capture the northern kingdom? 722. All right. So 722, we're in 801 right now. Hazael dies and the campaigns don't stop. When Hazel dies, he passes it off to his son Ben-Hadad too. And Ben-Hadad too keeps coming in and keeps wreaking havoc on the children of Israel, particularly in the northern kingdom. Now, one of the reasons, I want you to think about this from just a political perspective, why would a nation be able to just not have any concerns about anyone else but go into a land and just continue to engage them in battle and continue to plunder all their goods. Well, it's because they didn't have another enemy around, right? That's the reason you're able to do that because Assyria at this time is basically nothing. And so, Aram, if you'll think about the map for just a second, you remember the map, you've got Assyria. You've got Assyria over here, and you've got Aram, Damascus, that area right here, right? So Assyria over here is virtually nothing. So at your back, you don't have to worry about an enemy. You you got no one. And Babylon, even if they did have a military, well, they've got to go all the way up through Assyria to get to us. That's a natural buffer. So Aram is not concerned with anybody behind them. What does that mean? That means you can walk into this territory of Palestine or Canaan and you can take advantage of it. Any resources they have, you can plunder. Well, that's a big deal because remember the Fertile Crescent? If you'll dig back in your memory a long way back when we were in the middle of COVID and we were talking about this whole area, right? The Fertile Crescent is tremendously important in history. Why? Because it's fertile. <laughs> As the name implies, it's fertile. Why is it fertile? Because it's got two massive rivers that run right up the side, uh, uh, either side of it, the Tigris and the Euphrates. You've heard of them, right? These are tremendously important, and everything in between is lush and green. That's why they call it the Fertile Crescent. But that extends all the way down into the land of Canaan. And so for anybody who's worked their salt, you've got to halfway decent military, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to try to take the whole place, right? The whole lot. Because if you own it all, then man, are you rich, right? There's nothing you can't do, which is part of when we were talking about the children of Israel moving into the land of Canaan, moving into Palestine. The reason that that's so tremendous is that the there is actually a peasant group of people, a group of people who were slaves in Egypt, who walked across the wilderness and they just walked into the richest territory in the entire place. When on earth has that ever happened, right? It hasn't. I mean, you don't just walk into Times Square and take the place, right? This is tremendous property that they've taken. And so if you've got a military up north who has nobody, no enemy behind them, well, they're just going to come in and pillage and plunder the whole, the whole lot. And that's what they did. They took control all the way through uh, Hazael's death, even into his son's death. And it lasted at least until about 796. We're saying so five years after Hazael's death, they continue to walk in there and plunder. And they had occupied, they had taken many territories in what's called the Transjordan, which is just to the east of the Jordan River. They had taken a lot of those territories from Israel. You know what it's... I mean, that's, that's tribal territory. That's tribal allotment on the other side of the Jordan River. Do you know what it says to a king when you've lost... the ter- A king of Israel, no less. When you've lost territories outside the Jordan River? Well, that's a big deal. And Hazael was able to just come in and take it with little to no impunity because Assyria is nothing. Now, the reason that Joash was able to remain free from all of this, is because he paid Hazael off. Now, I want to ask you a question. Where do you think he got the money to pay Hazael off? Right out of the temple. Look at 2 Kings 12, 17, 18. At that time, Hazael king... Now this, by the way, this passage occurs right after uh, uh, his decree that we need to save up money in the temple all right so at that time hazel king of syria went up and fought against gath and took it now gath just pause for just a second gath is right down in the gaza strip right you've heard of the gaza strip i'm sure the gaza strip is right by the mediterranean sea it's the area that the philistines had occupied gath is one of the big cities of the philistines so that is down so if you have jerusalem in the southern kingdom that is, that is right down here next to Jerusalem, all right? So they go in. He's on a campaign to go down here to Philistine territory and take it. And so he does. He battles Gath. Well, on his way back to Damascus, to Aram, he looks over here and he goes, well, who's guarding this temple over here? And this point, this is where, uh, where um, uh, Joash speaks up. And jo- Joash, uh, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Uzziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated sacred gifts, that dedicated to the temple, and his own sacred gifts, that is, in the coffers uh, for repairs of the temple, and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and he sent these to Hazael, the king of Syria. Then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. So there were tons of treasuries that were stored up for repairs on the temple and all kinds of sacred gifts that were otherwise dedicated to the temple of the Lord, and he took all of those coffers and said, well, here, just we'll give these to you so that you don't destroy us. Racketeering is basically what that that is. The mafia is well known for it, right? But that's basically what that is. And so he, he gives them all this gold, and it is apparently enough to divert Hazael's attention from the southern kingdom at least for a little while. But what happens in 801? Hazael kicks the bucket. That's the thing about kings, they're mortal, right? And the deals that you make with the one king, they don't necessarily carry over from generation to generation. So he pays Hazael in this large sum of money from the temple, and it's the, the immunity from prosecution is only going to last so long, right? Ben-Hadad going to take over, and unfortunately, that is the end of that little uh, what, gravy train, for Joash. In fact, soon after Hazel dies, we're not sure exactly when, but soon after Hazel dies, uh, the Syrians under Ben-Hadad, they go into Judah, and God gave Judah into their hand. And the battle, obviously, at the end results in the injury of Joash, leaving him so incapacitated that his servants are able to kill him. So he made this deal with the dad, but once son took over, son didn't care anything about the deal. If you ain't got more gold for me, to, for me to get, then who cares? I'm coming in there and I'm going to kill you. So in the battle, he's injured. And so we're going to read about that in 2 Chronicles. This is part of the hard part going through 2 Kings. You got to keep track of so many different places. But Second Chronicles is another place, 24, 23 to 25. At the end of the the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, the Lord delivered into their hand a very great army. Why? Because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from him, leaving him severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David. But they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Now This is one thing we see time and time again with the kings of the north and the south. When they step into idolatry and immorality, God is pretty swift to judge them and he does here with Joash because of what he had done to Jehoiada's son and so he is killed so he's injured in battle and then his servants gather around him and kill him all right now we turn our attention to the northern kingdom where we've got a whole bunch of stuff going on we're going to so so just to keep in mind sometime around 796 or so 722, the Assyrians walk in, capture the northern kingdom. 796 or so, Joash dies, okay? Okay, that closes the curtain on the south for the time being. We turn our attention to the north, and we go back in time 17 years, all right? 17 years before the death of Joash, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, is now reigning in the northern kingdom. So on the back of your packet here, in the back page, just remember, back here in the back, you've got a little timeline of when the kings reigned, north and south, and then we're filling in the prophets as they come about, right? And, so, and kind of trying to put them in their place. Okay, so you've got your little timeline, and you see over there on the north, you've got Jehoahaz, who takes over the throne uh, several years before, uh, 17 years before Joash's death in 796. All right. Um, Ben-Hadad is continuing to come down and just rain terror on the northern kingdom. He's continuing to battle them and co- continuing to do them harm. And so let's look at 2 Kings 13, to 9. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. So they're just giving you the timeline here. Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but, uh, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria for there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his father and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, reigned in his place. All right. So there's a couple of important things here. Ben-Hadad obviously is continuing what his dad did, and he's raining down terror on the northern kingdom. Now Jehoahaz is as we see evaluated by the author as he's evil, all right? But there's one tiny little very important detail in here that you cannot absolutely cannot miss. That there was a day of distress that came upon Jehoahaz and he called upon the Lord. And what happened? It says in verse 5 that the Lord sent a deliverer, a savior to the Northern kingdom. So what we can't miss in all of this, as often as God's people fall into idolatry and wickedness and he judges them for it, he also steps in and is gracious and loving, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and saves them, right? Right? So we can't miss that because it's important even for the end of this passage tonight. So so remember that he steps in at at Jehoahaz's uh, request in spite of the fact that the northern kingdom continues in idolatry. The author is clear to make you understand that, that they continue in idolatry. They didn't turn from the acts of Jeroboam, the idolatry, the worshiping at the temples, the worshiping of the false gods and things like that yet the Lord still gave them a savior. Now, what was this savior? Uh, well, we don't know. The text doesn't say, but historically there might be some inclinations that sort of fill in maybe a gap here that it's probably the king of Assyria. All right. The reason is because at about this time, the king of Assyria, about this time in human history, the king of Assyria begins to launch campaigns into Aram, Remember what we talked about earlier? You got Aram up here. They have no enemy at their back. And so they are able to pursue the land of Canaan with impunity. No no recourse. They just continue to take land and pillage and plunder. But about this time in human history, the king of Assyria comes on the scene and begins to wreak havoc in Aram. The king of Assyria, in case you wanted to know, his name is Adad-Nirari III. All right. I'm sure you're going to remember that and you're going to write that on the back of your eyelids and you're going to think about it as you sleep tonight. Um, But the king of Assyria at about this time in human history begins to mount up an army. This is like the first time Assyria has been important in a long time. All right. In a long time. And it's really the last time they'll be important or significant for the next 50 years. All right. So. Just think about this for just a second. The reason that I think this is really important—I've got all these gadgets and gizmos up here—the um, reason that I think this is really important, just to remind you of the map again, is because you have that. There's this. There's a, a passage in the Psalms. I wrote it down because I couldn't remember it off the top of my head. So, uh, in the Proverbs, Proverbs twenty-one, one: "The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord; he guides it wherever he will." Right? Turns it whichever way he wants to. The reason that 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 verse, that proverb, should just govern your reading of all the scriptures, but in particular the Old Testament, is because you've got situations exactly like what's playing out tonight right here. You have the king of Assyria, Assyrian kingdom, which has not been much of nothing for a long time. All of a sudden there is a blip on the radar where they become significant enough to move into Assyria, into Aram, and distract them from pillaging and plundering the northern kingdom. Happens to coincide with a prayer of a king out of the northern kingdom who says, Lord, save us. Coincidence? I don't think so. What you see is that these kings, as the... Passage in Proverbs, the verse in Proverbs makes clear these king's hearts are chess pieces in the hand of the Lord. He moves them wherever he wants them. And raises up kings, destroys kings, raises up kingdoms, destroys kingdoms. And in this case, I think, pretty good reason to conclude that it's for the salvation of his people in response to... Their cry, in spite of the fact that it's not truly a repentance cry, even all right. So the king of Assyria launches a campaign that lasts for a while um, into Aram and distracts them, I think, from that whole uh campaign that they were on into Canaan, Palestine. Now, this actually gives Israel, the northern kingdom, time to recuperate. Obviously, they lose a king. They get a new king on the throne. It gives them time to recuperate and actually rebuild. Because what does the king say? He has no horsemen. Or what does the author says? He's got no horsemen. He's got no chariots, practically. And he's got just a precious few footmen. That's not enough for an army. And he's worried. And so they need to replenish their resources. And that is what happens. Next in line. This is where it gets confusing, so just hold, bear with me, okay? Next in line after Jehoahaz is Joash. That, that makes it really hard, doesn't it? When the king of the north and the king of the south have the same name, you're like, what? who is this? So I'm going to try my best as often as I can to refer to the king of the north as Jehoash, which you will also see. You will see him labeled Joash. You will see him labeled Jehoash just pay close attention to where they say he's king of, all right? Anytime you see a king in the Old Testament, just pay really close attention to where he's the king of, because that, that's going to help you out, I think, a whole lot. And, you know, having a list like where the kings fall in order can sometimes be helpful when you read the Old Testament. All right, so a new king, Jehoash... Uh, comes on, the throne, on onto the throne of the north, and he's really not very exceptional and not worthy of much mention at all. The author actually tells you as much. Look at 2 Kings 13, 10 to 13. One exception here. He says, in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, that's the one in the south, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the capital city, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, that he's coming next week. We we haven't talked about him yet. King of Judah. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers and Jeroboam sat on the throne and Joash was buried in Samaria, king of Israel. Well, boy, it, it... We get the same little formula there in his text. Well, he walked in the sins, he did this, he didn't really do much, and then he was buried. And so we don't get much on Jehoash, but we do get this one little thing. This one little thing that's different from the formula is he fought with Amaziah. Now, why is that actually important? Well, it's important for what happens next because it brings in the death of Elisha. Ah, that's right. Here we get down to the nitty-gritty where Elisha is going to die. Why is that significant that Elisha is going to die? Did we like Elisha? Of course we like Elisha. Uh, Elisha, what was what, he for Israel? What, what, how did we feel about Elisha? What, what did we feel like he was for Israel? Was he not something of a conscience for Israel? Boy, if Israel steps out of line, he's going to let you know it. Well, where is Israel going to go if Elisha is dead? What happens to the conscience of the land and the king if Elisha is not there to anoint the next king or to pronounce judgment on the king or or what have you? What is going to happen to God's people? Doesn't that question at least come into your mind when you see Elisha is on his deathbed? should. You should start thinking, boy, I don't like that. I don't like it when that happens. Okay, so Elisha falls ill. And... Um, Jehoash the king of the north has a decimated army and he is in a lot of distress over fear that his army is going to be even further decimated and he doesn't know what to do look at second kings uh, 13 14 to 19 now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die spoiler alert Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He's lamenting over the fact that he doesn't have much. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Now, are you ready for this? And he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. Here it gets a little strange, and he struck them three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him. And he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Strange passage, right? Right. You feel that? There's several of these in the Old Testament that when the prophet does these, you're like, and there's a lot in Ezekiel. Boy, they can get very strange sometimes. And when you read that, you think, what in the world is going on? Well, he goes down to meet with Elisha out of fear of destruction. He consults Elisha and Elisha gives him a series of signs. Now, believe it or not, this is sort of a foreign language to us because we don't deal with Old Testament prophets that often. All right. But What's pretty common for them and for Old Testament prophets is to act out what the Lord is going to do. You actually even see this in the New Testament, and you, if you read the book of Acts, um, and I'm gonna—I can't remember the names off the top of my head—but but Paul is walking his way back to Jerusalem, and several of the people meet him and they—they they tell him that they—they they have bad feeling about this when he goes back, and he's going to actually be arrested, and that's going to eventually lead to his death many years later. And one of the prophets there with them binds his hands and b- binds his own hands and says, this is how you're going to walk out of Jerusalem, basically. And so this is a pretty common thing for a prophet to do to demonstrate the picture that the Lord has in his mind. Now, when we look at this king, Je- Jehoash taking the arrows out of his quiver or whatever and, and banging them three times and, and Elisha giving him judgment right there and kind of chastising him. We probably look at that and go, what, does it seem really fair? I mean, right? Like you didn't tell him like the number of times you beat the arrows on the ground is how bad you're going to beat Syria because he would probably have just commenced to wailing upon the ground. He didn't tell him that. And so it seems kind of unfair that he doesn't do this. But you have to understand that they're in the mode of enacting what the Lord is showing to Elisha. And he's just shot an arrow out the window and he's told him that's what the arrow represents, what you're going to do to a wrong. So he's just told him what the arrow symbolizes. And now he's given him the arrow and he says, take the arrows and whack them on the ground. This arrow symbolizes what you're going to do to Assyria to Damascus to Iran. What would you do if you realized these arrows just put the head of the king right there on those arrows and you just, you just, you just do whatever you want. You whack them on the ground. Well, he should be whacking them on the ground, right? He should be breaking them in half and, you know, stomping on them and things like that. He is less than enthusiastic about this whole thing, which is underscores some evidence, I think, that's there that says he's not really sure what this crazy man is talking about. Which probably gives you some idea that he's not doesn't really believe what's happening here, right? So it's not so much that this king, Jehoash, is uh, unfairly judged, and it is more that he is less than enthusiastic about the word of the Lord and the method by which it's coming through the prophet Elisha. So for that reason, I think he is judged. And so Elisha gives him this ominous sign, but then Elisha dies. That's a big deal, right? Because we've thought, well, Elisha's fallen sick. We knew this day was going to come and Elisha is taken away. What is Israel going to do now? And lo and behold, he's dead. And all of a sudden they start getting pummeled by another country. Now they're engaged in war. Well, goodness. Okay, so let's read um, 2 Kings thirteen twenty to 25. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites. We got Moabites, now we had Ar- Arameans, now we got Moabites. Moabites are out to the east. Mo- a band of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year and as, a man, and, and as a man was being buried, this is another man, not Elisha, was being buried. Behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. Okay, so they got a man with them. They're, they're putting him to death. This is totally different than, than, uh, than Elisha. They see a band of marauding invaders from the Moabites, and, and they, well, they've got to put down this man that they're carrying. They throw him in the grave and then pick up their weapons and go to fight him, Okay. So the man falls into the grave of Elisha. All right. (laughs) And as soon as the man, this is in 21, the end of 21. As soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Wow. a Resurrection, right? We've already talked about how many parallels between Elisha's life and Jesus's life there is. Now we see a resurrection. Okay. Um, Now, uh, Hazael, king of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Meaning until this very day. Okay, hold on on to that just for a second. It's really troubling that Elisha dies. And... You might be inclined as a Western reader in the 21st century to read that passage and think that's how much power Elisha had that somebody was thrown into the grave. And as soon as they touched his bones, the guy got up and was revived. That's not the way you're supposed to read it. The way you're supposed to read it is going dead bones. Can't do that. Dead bones can't wake up people, right? Or, don't you think they would wake up themselves? Dead bones can't do that. The way a Jew reads that is, oh, he's dead. Elisha's dead. There's, there's nothing left there of Elisha. It's the same way we're supposed to read in Acts when it says Peter's shadow was healing people. It says Paul, the Holy Spirit was doing such mighty works. The Lord was doing such mighty works through Paul that handkerchiefs that touched people, that he had touched, were healing people. Well, you could read that and say, well, Paul was such an amazing guy that the handkerchiefs were healing people. No, that's not what Luke tells you. Luke tells you the Lord was doing such a work through Paul that things that he had touched were healing people, like handkerchiefs. So we have this question, Elisha's died. What is going to happen to Israel? It really becomes a question of who is the protector of Israel. Is it Elisha? Well, the author lets you know, hang on. It was a dead guy that was thrown into Elisha's tomb. And as soon as he touched the bones, he woke up. It tells the reader, not that Elisha is powerful, but the spirit that endowed Elisha with that ministry is powerful. So what does it reiterate to the reader? That the Lord is the protector of Israel. That he always has been. Who is the protector of Israel? It's the Lord, He always has been. How do we know that? Because the verse that follows right after it. Here's a band of marauding invaders, and a guy gets up. Here's one more soldier now that we thought was dead, but now he got up and he's now fighting. <laughs> so a sir, not Assyria, Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. Remember, that was the father of Jehoash. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them. Why? Not because of the covenant with David. You you realize that? Not because of the covenant with David? That's the South. And when when he talks about his kindness toward the South, he mentions the covenant with David. But for this, the Lord's got to go all the way back before David, because he didn't have that kind of covenant with the northern kingdom. But he does have a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, because they are children of Israel. And so the Lord digs back all the way in the archives of his memory to go back to the time of Abraham, which is a thousand years from where they're at now, and says, because of the covenant I made with Abraham, I will respond to you in kindness. And so he says, the Lord was gracious to them. Who is the protector of Israel? It's Yahweh. And it always has been. How do we know that? Because dead bones that he empowered gave us another fighter on our side. (laughs) Questions? Sure. Yes. Protector, provider. You name it; it's the Lord, and it always has been. Now, incidentally, why is this also important? We're in about seven ninety somewheres, seven nineties. Why is it important for you to remember right now for the author of Kings to say the Lord always has been the protector of Israel, and He always will be, and He remembers His covenant that He made with Abraham. Why is that important? For the author to remind the reader right about this time? Because Assyria is about to come on the scene here in just a few years. About 40 or 50 years, Assyria is going to come on the scene. And Assyria is going to do some real bad stuff in the northern kingdom. In fact, they're going to create the Samaritans. The Samaritans we know from Jesus' day. They're going to create them. And they come in and invade At that point, you're going to be tempted as the reader to go, well, that's it for them. And the author of 2 Kings is here to go, don't, not so fast. The Lord is the protector of his people. He always has been. So then what does that say to us, right? Not only has the Lord set his affection to his people, but he actually sent Christ, his own son, to die for them. His affection is sealed upon his people. I've said a number of times, and, and this is true. It's been so really true in my life, and it, and the more I say it, the more I find people who who you know commiserate with me. That often in the midst of sin and just even just sinful choices, and even just even just spiritual ruts that you get in, where you just less than on fire for the Lord, you know you you. I have this kind of nagging thought that the Lord's just, he's just mad at you. And he just, he's had it at this point. But that's not true. The Lord disciplines those he loves, sure. He corrects you in sin, absolutely. But he set his love and fixed it on you. He's got nothing to be angry for. Why? Because his wrath was poured out on his son. He has no more wrath to give. He has no more wrath towards to give. That's why we can come in here and sing praises. He has no more wrath to give to us. So we can be comforted by that. And even in the Old Testament, when his people were just walking and abusing every, every which way, he still remembered. He was still kind. Other questions? Comments? James, yeah, 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 Heart of the king is a yeah, yeah, So yeah, 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 Proverbs 21, 21, 21, 1. write it on your mirror. It's worth remembering. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Thanks is is hardly a good enough word. It feels sometimes for what we feel for what you have done for us in Christ. You have sent your son to die for us. You have set your love on us. And when we are faithless, you remain faithful to us. When we turn our back, you pursue us. You convict us of sin. You turn us back to you. You give to us the gift of repentance. And when we come down the road, you run and embrace us as sons and daughters. What an amazing, amazing thing you have done for us when you did not have to. So, Father, we return thanks, first of all. But I pray for our own hearts that that thought, that that understanding, that that knowledge of what you have done for us would inspire something in our heart that would give us. A bubbling desire to worship you with our life. To continue to pursue obedience by the power of your spirit. To continue to grow in understanding and learning of who you are and what you've done through your word. And and also to tell others about what gift we have received in Christ and to boldly and confidently expound the truths of Scripture before them so that we may take every hostile thought in this world captive to the truths of Scripture. We pray that you would give us the boldness to do that, that our worship of you would bubble up into our evangelism. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. See you guys Sunday.